Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for September 6th, 2018, the Unsung Hero Edition I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. We're all together in the CBS radio studio here in New York City. John Dickerson facing me. Not really facing, sort of half facing me to my right of CBS this morning. Hello, John. Thanks Hello, for having David. us. Oh, you have new glasses. Well, they're just actually these are these came from Ireland in a in a chemist's in Ireland. And you know what? We were in the countryside of Ireland, and the chemist in the front window of the chemist was was um it was a an advertisement for some liquid you could give cows to help with their digestion. So that was the most important thing they were selling to passersby. But they also had glasses. <laughs> and to John's right is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. I have no story to top that. That was that was very distinctive. If one of us was going to write an op-ed about the scandal inside the the Gabfest, which one of us would write it anonymously? I think it would probably be me. You're John. You're too honorable. John, what would you write about David? Well, How you're underappreciated, and it, you could write about yourself as the unsung hero. Definitely. It depends what the, but it depends what your hero, motivation yes. is. Because if you, because morale, a deep seed, or what your read of the op-ed we're about to talk to was, right? If you're deeply moral, then that could be the occasion to write the op-ed. If you were just sour grapes and not moral, and felt like it was a moral uh, betrayal of the president, then you wouldn't write one. Well, we have no president. It's the problem. There's no president at the. It would be a little hard top. to find someone to to rant against in quite the same manner. I don't feel oppressed in Gabfest land. You know what? This is not an interesting conversation. All right. Can we? All right, let's proceed? move on. On this week's Gabfest, an op-ed from a mysterious administration official claiming there is a cabal of White House insiders undermining the president, and he's in favor of that, or she's in favor of that. That sets they Washington. Is the preferred pronoun they are in for favor, this but exactly sets Washington aflame. Even as the Bob Woodward book reveals a White House that's even more Looney Tunes than we already knew. Then Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation circus has begun, and it's already almost over. We will talk about whether he's going to get confirmed and what was Kamala Harris talking about. What was her mysterious question about? Then the New Yorker invites Steve Bannon to its festival, then disinvites him. Was that the right move? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And we continue to be thrilled to announce Slate Day, which is a live podcast experience in connection with the Texas Tribune Festival. We and Trumpcast and Amicus and El Gabfest and The Gist on September 29th, just a few weeks away at the Capitol Factory in downtown Austin. There's going to be a day of podcasting. You should go to slate.com slash live. There's still some tickets available for all-day passes. There are no tickets that just get you into our show, but you can buy an all-day pass and get to see our show as well as all these other wonderful podcasts. And we're going to have a guest, which is DeRay McKesson, the civil rights activist and podcaster, is going to be with us for the Gap Fest, which is going to be really great. So 
Slate.com slash live for tickets and information. An anonymous New York Times op-ed from a, a senior Trump administration official was published on Wednesday. It has become the talk of the political world. This anonymous official says they are working to frustrate President Trump because he is un- amoral, unprincipled, inconsistent, dangerous. This author described themselves as unsung heroes and as part of the resistance. Uh, meanwhile, Bob Woodward's book, Fear, comes out next week. It isn't out, and yet uh, the Washington Post has summarized it. The president has tweeted about it. The Chatterati has copies. John Dickerson probably has a copy. Um, I don't at the moment, but I'm... But you could have a copy. You could. You could. And we have Bob on the show next week, actually. So, so uh, you will by then. Yeah, presumably. I should hope so. <laughs> uh, so that's overshadowing even the, the amazing Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court hearing. So, John, let's start with you. Why is this op-ed in the Times, why has it so captured the imagination? And is does it, you know, really represent any change? Anything, it's, how much did we not know, I suppose? Right, exactly. I kind of feel like um, that it's basically this is a different form of what we've read in Wolf, in Michael Wolf's book, what we are reading in in Bob Woodward's book, which instead of sitting down for an interview with an author and then having the author put it into a narrative, this person just sat down and wrote an, an op-ed. Um, I think it's worth noting that what what this person is describing is an anti-democratic organization inside the White House to thwart the will of the people, a by the way. Coup, effectively. Yeah, it's, it's something that does not appear to be constitutional or within the parameters of the separation of powers and our governmental structure as we know it and yet perhaps crucial well well is this person is this person an unsung hero or are they part of something is it is it heroic to undermine a very dangerous unreliable inconsistent uh president who's a threat to the nation or is it uh is it cowardly to hide anonymously and to not confront the president directly one little piece of that, uh, those questions that I would, that I'm interested in is um, Tom Nichols made this interesting point, which I thought was right. So David Frum wrote a, a strongly argued piece saying basically this person should have come out and, um, and, and named themselves and led to or be sort of the first step in a constitutional response to the argument made in the op-ed and the one made um, off the record to various journalists and to, to, to Bob Woodward, which is that the president is unfit for the job. So Nichols this is, is the 25th Amendment fantasy. Well, there are two two there. Yes, there's the 25th Amendment fantasy, which is really a fantasy. because, <laughs> And you can explain why uh, in a moment. But the other is impeachment proceedings. So uh, right. and, unfitness is the grounds for impeachment. That's right. the argument, which is not actually high crime or misdemeanor, but continue. Right. Right. Well, you can determine any high you crime decide, misdemeanor. So you could make that really not what. It says, and I think, anyway. and I think, and I hope I'm not doing injury to David's argument, but his argument is that, that people have to stand up and be counted because that would initiate then the proper response to an administration that is as this person describes, and that to not do so is actually worse because it creates paranoia in the chief executive and it just sort of muddles things. Um, Nichols's point in responding was, if this person had said who they were, the conversation would immediately go, even more so than it already has, to a dissection of where they came from, who they worked for, 
whether they had voted for Republicans all their life, whether they were an elite, whether they were not elite. And all of those uh, questions that we now um, go through would have would have taken away from the central point, which is that the president is morally unfit to the office, which is a central central claim of the piece. I wonder what either of you thought about the fact that the piece basically says, well, we've kept the president from doing all these horrible things, although it doesn't really say what those horrible things are. On Russia, it does a little bit. It says he didn't want to punish the Russians. But I've heard that a lot in the course of this administration is officials saying, oh, if we could tell you what we've stopped him from doing. And then I'd say, well, okay, so tell me. And And they don't. And that actually I find incredibly underwhelming. Well, isn't that the um, conundrum, if I may use the word, about this piece, which is that in order for it to avoid all the personalizing you just laid out, John, it has to have this level of abstraction, which then makes it impossible to evaluate what we really think about what the person's doing. And, you know, it seems like, look, we've had some sense all along that people aren't obeying every order President Trump gives, that that's to some greater extent than other presidencies. Um, But this made it feel like we had moved into this notion of a coup, which doesn't, which seems to have crossed some line. And yet we still don't have the specifics. to Well, but I I disagree with you guys when you say we don't have the specifics. We do have a number of specifics. We know, for example, that that well, no. From I mean, Woodward's book. From Woodward, we from know Wolf's that book. Jim Mattis has delayed the transgender ban that the president proposed. He slow walked it. We Woodward's book suggests that Gary Cohn at least you know Stole made, the letter off made the efforts to stop desk. the president from withdrawing from NAFTA and withdrawing from a South Korean trade agreement. We know, again, we don't know, but we think we know that Don McGahn uh, prevented the president from firing. Uh, who Mueller Sessions, Sessions. M- Mueller and Sessions, Mueller and Sessions, um, <laughs> by, by threatening, too. threatening right. to, to quit. So there, we do have, we do have at least pretty decent knowledge of of episodes that would have been damaging to the nation and damaging to our sense of how the country's supposed to work. And so, it, while it's true the op-ed writer didn't right. cite anything specific, we do have evidence from other places that suggests. So, so, so how does that change the analysis for you? Does that make it feel like we already knew about this and we have essentially become comfortable with it as a way of containing the worst impulses of a very erratic and powerful man? Or does it make you feel like this is alarming? Well, I, I mean, I come back to the point, I mean, that, that a friend of mine made to me, a Republican friend of mine made me the other week, which is that we're, it's really messed up that the the White House should be filled with people who are loyally carrying out the president's agenda and working to do that which he was believes he was elected to do. And these other branches of government, notably the legislature, should be working to monitor, check, limit what he's doing. And what, again, what is overwhelmingly terrible and alarming and evident is that the legislature and in particular the Republicans who control both houses of Congress have been absolutely unwilling to challenge the president and are and that is continues to be the the principal problem in the country it is not that his administration is 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 uh it's not the problem in the white house it's the problem in the legislature to my mind right which is which could take us into the Kavanaugh discussion too because but 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 um I just want to go back and underscore something Emily said, which I think is just exactly right about the op-ed itself, because 
we're trying to figure out what about the op-ed has a kind of special magic or doesn't. And I think this the idea that the abstraction allows it to have some authority, in, in a sense, the author is the every person or can be because you kind of fill in those blanks. But the more specific it gets, the less the anonymity is protected. And therefore, it never finally gets to the final what you want, which is we stop the president from doing X, Y, and Z. And and those examples you gave, transgender ban and withdrawing from NAFTA, which are in the Woodward book and not in the op-ed, are, it seems to me, not really DEFCON 5 or whatever Agreed. it is that the author of the op-ed is talking about. I mean, the author of the op-ed is basically saying this is, an, this is a person from whom we have rescued the country when it's on the brink. And they make it sound like a conspiracy of officials within the administration who yeah. are working together. It's not just policy disagreements. The way that the... the, the, the and maybe I'm imputing argument that isn't in it, but the fact also that the Times felt it was necessary to run this anonymous op-ed and the weight it's being given suggests this is not just kind of he runs bad meetings, which, um, you know, or he's impetuous, but like that, that we literally have been on the brink and they've been saved, which, by the way, being on the brink is something Woodward quotes Rob Porter, the former staff secretary, is basically saying in terms of describing the chaos in the White House. Um, but you don't think that 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 blowing up the relationship with South Korea is a would be an absolutely catastrophic act, or to blow up NAFTA unilaterally would well, be a catastrophic act. I, I think that well, again, those are in the in the book and not the and the, and not the the, the op-ed. I think that. Um, but is if that's what we elected, if that's who the country elected, and that the president has that power. Then the answer to is that a catastrophic event is that Congress steps in, that there's some result out there in the world, not that like you're being internally thwarted by people who supposedly work for you. Well, I mean, there's a there's a another question, which is that is every is every single um, momentary fleeting desire of the president, does that express, in fact, a policy preference of his administration. Well, I mean, that's overall. a way of minimizing. He's a, he's a person who is who is incapable of self discipline. He changes his mind on a whim. He's constantly flailing about from one position to the other. So, so is it is is in fact if he if if he says you know the national color will be orange, like is that in fact does that right is that the same as him? Like after deep contemplation saying we should send 7,000 more troops into Afghanistan. I mean, obviously not, because if he really cared about sustaining a preference for blowing up NAFTA or South Korea, stealing one letter off his desk wouldn't take care of the problem. And so you could even argue that these conspirators in the administration, let's use that word, are fulfilling his will in some larger way. And they've divined that his impetuous... um, you know, momentary whim-like proclamations are not supposed to be followed. But th- but again, like, none of this is how we imagine the operation working. Yeah, and the, so what I wonder is this, is if this is... Here's the thing that, going back to the points both of you made about the role of Congress, here's what we know about the leaders in Congress, because they've said it, um, they've said it privately. What they know is that, that it is a house of chaos. Um, and they know that they I mean, Paul Ryan essentially walked up to this idea yes. in his inter- in his piece with with Mark Leibovich, which was, you know, think of the things we've kept him from doing, speaking him in that case of, of President Trump. So if they know this, 
this is not the way to run a railroad. You cannot have a presidency that has a cabal inside that is that is keeping the country safe. And that, again, back to Congress's duty, they should maybe like look into this. Bob Corker, the chairman of the, uh, the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, essentially in response to the uh, Times op-ed said, yeah, this is what I've been talking about for a long time. And in fact, he has when he talked about. Yeah, and he quit. Well, right, exactly. No, and and so so the point is like, okay, this is what you've been talking about, but your you role is to do something because, again, whether you're pro-Trump um, and you think this is an anti-democratic cabal or you're anti-Trump and you think, gee, this is not a way to run a railroad and it's going to get America into a problem when it has to face a real crisis, somebody should get in and figure sort this out. And guess whose job that is? That's Congress's job. I mean, the other thing that really struck me from the Woodward book and this op-ed, this is a week of Trump's humiliation in a new level. That's what feels different to me. Like, his, he's being publicly flayed and just embarrassed. And I actually, I didn't feel sympathy for him in his response, but you could see it and feel it. It's like a bear being poked in a cage. And that is really unsafe to me. And so what I deeply feel confounded and um, suspicious about is the virtue of this supposed unsung hero publishing this piece at all. Like if the point that you're providing this like stealth, quiet, I'm not using the word resistance. I think that's ludicrous. But like this cabal to contain the worst impulses, announcing it to the person saying, you don't even fully grasp that this is happening is going to trigger all his worst paranoia. So I'm really, I mean, all I can conclude is that this person, you know, either just convinced him or herself that, um, you know, people needed to know somehow or it's like after a book deal in two years, like that there's some really craven self-serving impulse behind the whole thing because it just seems like the opposite of helpful. And Senator Corker, in response to the op-ed, said, this is why I thank General Mattis all the time, which is building on your point, Emily, right. which is, Madison boy, not that doesn't help. Yeah, that does not help General Madison. His dealing with, if you believe the premise of the op-ed, which Corker says he does, which is that there needs to be these guardrails, the quote-unquote adults in the room, uh, then you're not helping those adults if you're saying, boy, there are adults in the room. One of the things somebody who was cl- very close to Secretary Tillerson told me about his initial days was that they had be- he- Tillerson had been told and was trying to act out the idea that he could never be seen as the kind of adult in, in the room with this president or else that would immediately get you you know, on the bad list with the president. And so this is not helping them. Final point I wanted to make that back again to your point, Emily, about uh, how embarrassing this is. The op-ed had a line which I found was very powerful, which was um, powerful, I mean, in, in its sense of, of offending the president, which is that the good things that have happened in the administration have happened in spite of the president and not because of him. What we know of this president is that he is very concerned about taking credit for things both that yeah. he's done and that things he's over which he's had no dominion, like the safety of U.S. airlines. Um, and so to hit him right there, uh, because that's been his rebuttal to, to Woodward, is essentially like, basically, even if this were all true, and I'm over overdoing it here a little bit, but even if this were all true, it doesn't matter. You know, unemployment is low, manufacturing jobs are up, you know, we're talking to North Korea. It, one point uh, that Ezra Klein made, which just to build on a little bit, is that this op-ed is not in substance that different from all the leaking that that people in the White House are constantly doing to reporters and from all the leaking they've now done to Bob Woodward. So is it yeah. does it in fact represent something any different than than those than that ass covering and and uh you know 
reputation protecting that's being done. I mean, I think on the substance, it's not very different at all. And yet the combination of the mystery, like the speculating everyone who's paying attention. I mean, so many people have emailed me to ask me. I have no idea who this person is. Zero zilch. But like, I guess because I work at the New York Times, there's some like fantasy that I do. So listeners, Emily's acting super cagey. (laughs) Her eyes are shifting back and forth. So there's that, the speculation, which is just like becomes a parlor game. And then I think there is the humiliation and the kind of public fling. I mean, this is the emperor has no clothes moment. And that is fascinating because it's mortifying, but it also is dangerous. Yeah. Can I bring in one other thing I'd love to get your thoughts on, Emily, which is that this week the president tweeted, um, about Jeff Sessions. And unbelievable. This, this, unbelievable. This Go is ahead, actually, and, yeah. and Ezra Klein, I think, is right when he makes this argument, which is, which is, you know, okay, the memo. But this is something the President of the United States said out loud, which yep. is essentially the Jeff Sessions, sh- well, I, I'm sorry, I don't have the tweet in front of me to, to actually read it. But. I mean, he's, he basically gave Sessions, he, he flayed Sessions for having... Because the Justice indicted, Department indicted two Republican congressmen before the election and said, you know, good job, Jeff, because those were easy wins for those us. Those were safe it's seats, just yeah. a totally partisan reading and interference with an ongoing investigation. I have it. Here it is. Two long-running Obama-era investigations of two very popular Republican congressmen were brought to a well-publicized charge just ahead of the midterms by the Jeff Sessions Justice Department. Two easy wins now in doubt because there's not enough time. Good job, Jeff. Unbelievable. So, I mean, that would... Yeah. The, and Obama would be impeached by, oh. by sunset. If for any president, that should be grounds for, like, serious questions. And, and let's just delineate quickly why. One, um, uh, to call it the Jeff Sessions Justice Department as if, <sighs> you know, it's some entity out there floating on its own. B, a president is not supposed to... Um, put the thumb on his attorney general, which he does now with such regularity. We forget that. Um, and then three, he makes no claim about the innocence of those two Republicans who've been charged. Oh, no. He basically says he, they shouldn't be charged because they're Republicans and that the timing was bad because it was near the election. And we- four, there is a Justice Department <laughs> protocol from staying away from elections, but those indictments were in August. Like, they were outside of the guidelines. <sighs> it's incredible. Do you... One of the, the maybe this is gets too much into into uh, election strategy questions, which we shouldn't. I'll ask it of you, Emily. I, oddly, I am not sure that a democratic landslide at this point has the right might have the right impact on the oh, really? country Ta- because I don't because I don't think impeachment of the president, which is the only way he will be removed from office, impeachment and conviction will require a certain number of Republicans to go along with it under any circumstance. You need Republicans in the party to break from him. And the Republicans who are likely to survive a Democratic landslide are going to be extremely conservative. So you're saying that impeachment is a good outcome after November as opposed to not. Is that oh, the I don't assumption? Think, I do not your... think impeachment is a good outcome well, at then, all. So wouldn't you say that's a good thing that they'll be the Republicans won't go along with impeachment and so we won't have impeachment? Well, there might be impeachment, but there won't be conviction. Uh-huh. And that's the worst of both worlds? That's the worst of all possible right. worlds. And conviction, I think, is only possible with a Republican support of the process, which there will not be if the only Republicans who survive the... Well, there won't be anyway. I mean, really. Unless there... Yeah, no, it's hard to... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that... Um, in, I do agree with you that starting off an impeachment and not getting to a conviction would be really poor outcome for the country because it will just make all the Trump supporters feel totally screwed. 
um, and, you know, reverberate into 2020 and beyond. Whether the Democrats would really try it if they're not going to have convictions seems more questionable to me. It depends, though, what Mueller comes up with, right? I mean, everyone is waiting for that. I, I would assume that Congress, no matter who's running it, is going to wait for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it all it all still always comes back to what what Mueller has. And do you think it's too late for Mueller to say anything substantial more before the election? Before the election, because I kind of do. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think yeah. that the window has closed, and yeah. that it's we're going to find out afterward, which is also weird and unsettling. Though you know, given Jim Coney's shenanigans, I don't really you know that is an important guideline to respect. Last question on this. We haven't talked that much about the Woodward book, which is what I think at the beginning of the week we, <laughs> we thought, thought we talked we about talk all about the it. time. So, John, you, you are a, you're a, uh, a deep scholar of Washington and a, you've seen Woodward at work over the past your whole life, essentially. Mm. Um, what impact do you think this book might have, if, if any? What do you think? What do you, what's its value to, to history or to the, to the present or to anything? Because we know of his... He's quite thorough. All these conversations are recorded. He tends to, in, in speaking to administrations in the past who've had to deal with him when he's written books, what happens is at first they don't want to cooperate. Then what happens is he comes in and he says, okay, I have these documents and this memo and this thing. And it, he's, he's able to paint the picture of a moment using authenticated documents and statements about what was happening. And then the administrations think, okay, he's got, the, he's got what's happened. So we need to participate in order to kind of try to, you know, shave off the rough edges. So I think it has a powerful effect. I think that that things that are said in the book, um, uh, it's not just hearsay. I think it's a two-week thing that's going to happen. I mean, the book hasn't even actually been released yet. Right. So there is a, there's a lot of this to come, and it will initiate a series of responses. I think, the, I think you could argue the op-ed is maybe a response to the book in a fashion, maybe yeah. not. We don't know the timeline, but I think that it will create its own set of reverberations, um, and also it happens in a context, which is that this is not the first time we've heard these stories. And so I think that it it ends up because of where it is and who wrote it being a kind of um, definitive look, uh, even though the president's defenders would say absolutely not. Because of all that's come before, people are basically like, this has the ring of truth. So what do we make of Kelly and Mattis's, you know, absolute denials in the context of all of this? <laughs> What do you mean? I mean, they're lying. I assume they're lying. (laughs) They just, they're, yeah. Well, the the denials are so blanket. Sorry, they're not so blanket. They're not. They're specific. But they're right. So that that the truth of what he said may be, the truth of what is reported may be correct, but a word might be off. And that gives you the the hole through which to make your denial. You think? I don't read the denials like that. I read this as I did not say these things and I did not speak to this person. And either that's true or it's not. Right. So your point is that it's that the denial is not just the specifics, but the entire spirit of the. So I did not say this specific thing nor anything like it. Yeah, that's true. They are quite blanket. Yeah. Well, I mean, I assumed that Kelly was lying too, but I paused on Mattis just because I don't think we can tell that Woodward actually spoke to Mattis, right? And so uh, David Martin of CBS reported that they did not speak. Right. So in that sense, it did make me wonder if it was possible that people had misreported Mattis's remarks. And if it seems like Mattis could have said things like that, but they didn't actually come from him. I don't know how much it matters. But David, you think I'm just being naive? No, I don't know. No, I don't know. I mean, Mattis strikes me as continues to strike me as the most honorable person in this administration. And his behavior has been 
he has done the best job in serving honorably and in he's also been pretty quiet. There hasn't right. been a lot I mean, I coming out from him. So thought, thoughts like that, but I actually do imagine it's possible that he didn't say things. Was like he that the one who loud. said that it was the fifth or sixth grader? Yes, which also just seemed not like a. I mean, you're spoken the like a man who doesn't have children shark. because I have a fifth grader who is so much more morally capable. <laughs> yeah. So so Mattis, so Mattis has it wrong about what fifth graders are like. Anyway, I don't know how much it matters, but I was wondering about that. So Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And the bonus segment we have for you today, it's a real elegiac end of summer segment. In fact, we're going to talk about the end of summer, but we're going to talk about the silver linings of the end of summer. So your week is probably like, oh, crud, I'm back at work. Ugh, still hot. I'm back at work. And we're going to tell you why it's great that summer is coming to a close. So... If you want to listen to that segment or other bonus segments, go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Brett Kavanaugh. President Trump's nominee to succeed Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court faced the august spectacle of a Senate Judiciary Committee confirmation hearing this week in front of a committee chaired by Republican Chuck Grassley. There was plenty of drama, drama in all senses of the word, drama in in both the the theatrics and drama in the the high tension in the room. It's been a very performative exercise. Democrats Democrats have been rightly incensed at Republicans accelerating the hearings without having reached, released huge swaths of Kavanaugh's record, also incensed that there were 42,000 pages dropped the night before the hearings began. And now, lo and behold, we do have more documents courtesy of an unknown leaker to the New York Times who's released a lot of these committee confidential files. Whoa, as we're taping news, breaking <laughs> Can't we get the CBS radio people to just do that, John? Did you have to do it? Or do you actually do all of those BBBs yeah, no, it's part every of my, time? Uh, That's part of your contract? Part of my contract. You know, we're trying to load share here. Uh, so, Emily, what is... Wait. All right. So tell us what's in those documents. Well, the Times leads with a memo Kavanaugh wrote in 2003, an email in which they're talking about an op-ed about um, abortion and that, that someone's writing. And Kavanaugh um, proposes taking out a line that said it is widely accepted by legal scholars across the board that Roe versus Wade and its progeny are the settled law of the land. Kavanaugh said he would take out that line, quote, I'm not at all sure that all legal scholars refer to Roe as the settled law of the land at the Supreme Court level since court the Supreme Court, can always overrule its precedent, and three current justices on the court would do so. So, I mean, that was true. There were three then, four and almost five, uh, almost certainly now. And then there are other documents pertaining to Kavanaugh engaging with, I think, John Yu about what uh, kind of warrantless surveillance could be legal in after 9-11. And then 
this whole question of what he knew about the nomination of Judge Pickering. He and Pickering have said he had no part in that. Seems like, uh, yes, he did. And then there's some problematic language about Native Hawaiians, Kavanaugh questioning whether they are really a protected group like Indian tribes. Huh. So, Emily or John, I assume that this entire uh, process is is still going to reach the same outcome. Is there anything that's happened so far that makes you think there's any doubt that Kavanaugh is going to be confirmed? He seems to have handled himself sufficiently well so far. Well, I guess what I would wonder in this current set of documents, so it seems to me that any policy positions he took in the course of the documents could be protected. And by protected, I mean for for the purposes of protecting the votes of Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, who are the two Republicans who could vote against Kavanaugh, who are even on the board, it seems to me, at all. Um, Leaving aside that the Democrats who might have to vote for Kavanaugh for their own political purposes because they're right. up for Manchin, Hyde Camp, Donnelly. Yeah. So that's anyway. But but so on the policy matters, I think that a, that that you could imagine Murkowski or Collins saying, look, this, this is policy debate inside an administration. People have to be free to air their views. This doesn't this suggests uh, this doesn't suggest a rigid uh, line of thinking, but, um, you know, just the kind of. Um, consultation and discussions that go inside an administration and basically using that as an out. But but on the one where he's, uh, he said, Emily, something, uh, he didn't have contact or conversations about something, and he in fact did, that seems to me on a moral, at a moral level gets to dishonesty, gets to issues that, that might be more problematic. Uh, so what he said at the time was he distanced himself from the Pickering nomination. He left it out of a list of the ones he worked on and said, senators, it was not one he primarily handled. Um, they've already accused him of being misleading about that. And it was Pickering who said he didn't recall um, interacting with Kavanaugh. So now that's clearly not true. So here's the thing that gets me about all of this. The most important thing headline is that these memos should never have been secret. We should have known all of this. Like the notion that there was some legitimate reason of executive privilege to withhold this seems like farcical. But also (laughs) there's something odd about um, intensely scrutinizing a memo this person wrote in 2003 about abortion when we have every reason to think that he doesn't support Roe versus Wade. It's like we're parsing some one sentence when there are just there's the evidence is is abundant based on his actual record. Well, but I guess the people aren't people trying to use that one sentence as a can opener to his larger views for the purposes Absolutely. of trying to convince Collins and Murkowski. Yes, and it makes it even harder for Collins and Murkowski to hide behind yeah. the charade that calling Roe versus Wade settled law has any meaning whatsoever. Well, it doesn't. But, I, but also, but I don't, nothing in what you just read, and, and this was just you quickly glossing a Times article about these documents, but nothing in that made me think Oh, he has damned himself. He's he's stated a kind of an opinion. He hasn't said, I really don't think this is settled law. He hasn't said anything right, like he that. He didn't. He's, I mean, ma- I he's think... merely describing, you know, he's he's making an edit based on perhaps a misguided sense of what the situation is. But he, I guess he so. didn't but to state go, something personally. To go down the unproductive road of uh, imputing. I mean, you wouldn't take the line out of the op-ed, everyone agrees this is settled and done with, if you wanted it to stay settled and done with. But it's but it's not that important. No, I, guess, I don't know. I agree. I mean, yeah. g- given all the other evidence. Yeah, um, I mean, we have his recent decision. He denied an abortion to a 17-year-old immigrant, um, you know, at a moment where she was already in need of having it happen quickly. So uh, t- I don't know what more you need to know. Um, on the question of executive privilege, 
So it seems to me that it's a pretty strong case. Kavanaugh has said, look at my period in the when he was staff secretary and in politics in an administration was when asked what his influences were. He said it might be the most fundamental part of his education. So what what Republicans have said is, look, you've got the last 12 years. But here the judge here, the judge himself has said this is a really important part of my makeup. So it seems to me on those grounds alone, it should be worth inquiring. Also, since one of the things we're trying to figure out in any of these, and this was certainly the case with the Kagan nomination, was did your do your political views, as Kagan talked about, it, can you take one hat off and put on another one? Can you stop being a political person when you go into this other job? And so since that's a live and important issue, it's another reason to want to look at this information. But so... So, A, it seems to me it's worth looking into, and B, to release it the night before is obviously, it would take like 700 hours to read if you read it one page a minute. So it's obviously not capable to assess the material in the time allotted. Uh, you said it was farcical, the executive privilege claims, but but where, why isn't it, why is it farcical to say staff should be able to, you know, edit memos and give counsel and all of that and have those have those discussions protected because if they're not at some level, then you don't get you know, the free flow of ideas inside of an administration that you want. So do you think, though, that, you know, what are we, 15 years later, someone who wants to be a Supreme Court justice, right? I'm not saying that, you know, absent Kavanaugh's nomination, all these documents should be released. I'm saying that if you want to choose that person as your nominee and he was the staff secretary in this role, then we get to find out what he said then. And this isn't as you like, this is all in line of what we would expect his views to be there. uh, Right. I mean, lying about Pickering, if that's I'm that's strong. Lying, I think, is an overstatement of what we have evidence for. I shouldn't use that word, you know minimizing his role of Pickering, like, we can assess that. But right. I think the fact that he was involved with the Pickering nomination, we should just... Can we just have an yeah. honest discussion yeah. about people's views? Like, that's yes. what I... Sorry, I'm going to rant for one more second. What I can't stand about what confirmation hearings have become is that they're not just discussing what you believe and and how you assess past cases. Like, can Kavanaugh answer how he would rule about a president being issued a subpoena? No, he can't answer that question because that could come before him legitimately on the court. Can he tell us what he thinks of the wisdom and the merits of Roe versus Wade? Of course he can, and he's not. And that just, I just, the whole thing, and the fact that all this is hidden is all in service of pretending that these people don't have political past when they absolutely do. Right. I, I, I agree with that. I, I, um, and, and so your argument in the rule you're suggesting is basically fine executive privilege, but you're, this is a special case and the damage done to the free flow of ideas inside of the executive branch is small relative to the power you're, granting this person and therefore yes would i think you. that before you get onto the supreme court there should be a thorough airing of your work and your ideas and you should defend your ideas and your work and like that's all i'm saying yeah. I, that's it but it, this goes to actually what i'm going to chatter about today there's a great tyler cowan piece about this that there's two one of the things that's happened with the the glut of information that we have is that when you have a glut of information about anyone or anything it becomes uh it becomes damaging to them. There will inevitably be something that you find offensive or disturbing in their in their belief system. So what's the answer and to that? So, I mean, and that I don't, seems and I, correct, but like, so what? I, I, but the answer is, I mean, so one of the problems is that that the the defense against that is just phoniness. It's just to like present yourself as somebody who has no views, who is you know who is 
that we basically force people born, into that born false pure posture because of the glut of information. Yeah, we force people into that posture because they know that if you, if in fact you gave truthful answers and honest answers, you you have opened yourself up to too much damage. Like there's there there's no you you're much less likely to survive this situation. And yeah, so, I so see the dilemma. Lie. I see the dilemma, but I also think that it is a disservice to the country to have someone be able to get up there and say, I'm an umpire, I'm a pro-law right. judge, these meaningless phrases, as opposed to like, yeah, I think Roe versus Wade was wrong. I think, you know, children are being murdered and I would like to stop it. And nowhere in the Constitution are there words that will stop but who, it. But so how do you have, how do we unilaterally disarm? disarm? Well, what's interesting about what Emily has just said is actually not, that's just candor today. You don't have to look into everything you've written ever in the course of life. What, what, and to, stop me if I'm wrong here, but if it if it's been post Bork and Ruth Bader Ginsburg contributed to this as well, and maybe she contributed in a way that I've got wrong, but they all contributed yeah, in some way. So they've all contributed to not not saying what their views are in plain terms, not the question of documents, because he could say what you just said, absent any documents and any rulings, really. Right. Right. Yes, he could. I mean, I the thing, the, and then the last part of it that really does feel like a farce to me is like. Why is the Federal Society, you know, the organ of the conservative legal movement, so excited about this person? Because they know he will do these things. Like if if they weren't ninety nine point nine sure percent sure, he wouldn't be the nominee. And so it's we're expected to. It's like I. It just gives me a headache. All the all the, the baloney yeah. we're supposed to hold in our minds at the same time. Uh, Emily, what do you make of this strange? But intriguing line of questioning of Kavanaugh, where Kavanaugh was clearly unsettled, where she was asking him he'd, if he'd ever spoken to anyone about Mueller at a particular law firm, the law firm of uh, one of the president's lawyers, Mark Kasowitz. And oh. and it was just it, it's a, the question didn't get resolved. It was very mysterious. Uh, and, and it was the and it moment set the where world Kavanaugh was knocked so, off Oh, his Kavanaugh guard. was clearly like, I'm, like I don't, I'm about to lie. I don't want to lie. I don't want to lie. I'm not going to lie. Play, I mean, it play was it totally out for people who don't know what you're talking about. Oh well, yeah. I mean, it was what David just said. Uh, Harris started on this line of questioning: Have you ever spoken to anyone at this law firm about the Mueller investigation? And Kavanaugh basically went, "Uh, uh, are you thinking of someone? Is there someone in particular that you mean?" And she said, "I think yeah. you're thinking of someone, and you're not saying it." I mean, I think the question is, where does this go on Thursday? Because she seemed to have some ammunition for whatever um does she know. get to come back to that i assume that She's she gets done. another round I don't know. yeah and what is the practical uh what's the what's the practical well, thing at the heart of this proof that he has indeed spoken to someone and was he catching himself from not actually denying it um and then what does it mean that he had this conversation right. and why if it was perfectly innocent why didn't he just say oh yeah the other day right yeah. that dude and if he had had conversations what then is the next what then is the next charge or question that can be raised about him that he's basically got an even closer connection to the president's fortunes and therefore if anything related to the president's fortunes came before the court and he should would he recuse favor. himself if right. he's actually has inside information about the investigation you know supreme court justices utterly control when they recuse themselves sure there is do. no higher authority i actually think it's a real structural flaw like there should be some way of having some committee someone who has oversight over that choice but it there isn't and so i think that's what she was getting at but it all depends what she's got 
I really enjoyed, though, how prosecutorial Harris was. You know, she's a prosecutor by training. And so many of the senators just, like, go on and on in these lecturing, pedantic ways. And she was just, like, going at it. She's definitely auditioning for president. I mean, there are several people auditioning for president. It was hard to get there. There was a lot of uh, off-Broadway auditioning going on. But it's distinct watching a prosecutor try to start taking someone apart in that way. And take them down a road. Yes. Yeah. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, And Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. What Super Bowl weekend is to sports fans, the New Yorker Festival is to a certain set of cosmopolitan liberals, probably a lot of you, dear GabFest listeners. Long weekend of superb panels, uh, witty celebrities being fawned over by even wittier New Yorker writers. Will Lena Dunham be in attendance? I'm sure she will be. It is a very comforting and very comfortable occasion. So there was shock and horror this week when the festival lineup was announced and it included editor-in-chief of the New Yorker, David Remnick, proposing to interview Steve Bannon, the Breitbart, former Breitbart publisher, presidential advisor, white nationalist, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, you know, I would call him that. Okay. He wouldn't probably call himself that. There was uproar. There were mass protests from New Yorker writers, withdrawals or threatened withdrawals from the festival by other attendees. Can you imagine a New Yorker festival without Judd Apatow, without Jim Carrey, without Jack Antonoff? Yes, I can, you, I can sense you weeping out there already. No Judd Apatow. There would be no Judd Apatow. Within hours, Remnick had rescinded Bannon's invitation, called it a mistake, said there were other more journalistic ways to handle dealing with Bannon and his ideas, and Bannon in return, called him gutless, which actually was what Trump also called the... There is no guts. No one has any guts anymore. So, uh, so John, should Steve Bannon have been no platformed like that? Was, was, uh, is the New Yorker Festival's job to expose, expose the New Yorker subscribers to uncomfortable ideas and interrogate those ideas? Or not? Well, I don't. Uh, well, I guess uh, once you invite somebody, yeah, you, disinviting. disinviting is really not. I don't think it's the way to go. I also think that if you're going to try to introduce people to, I'm a very big fan um, of introducing people to itchy ideas that they don't that confront them and challenge them um, in their comfort. Because if nothing else, it sharpens their opinions about why they dislike the thing so much. Which I think a refreshing of ideas, whether it's about faith or about politics, is um, is healthy. So then there's the question, um, Greg Lukianoff has written about a lot of these things and, and co-wrote a book with uh, with uh, Jonathan Haidt, The Coddling of the American Mind, which is just out. I asked him about this on the show, and 
he's he made a distinction between colleges where he's very much a proponent of free speech and not shutting down um, um, speakers who say things that that um, the audiences don't like. He made a distinction between college and the New Yorker Festival, which is a private, you know, it's a private enterprise. It doesn't have the same obligations that a college does. And so he said, you know, it's up to them to make their choice about it. I guess just as an, the economist made the opposite choice. They had Bannon show up. But I guess That's I didn't. a real cop out on Luke Yonhoff's part. Yeah. I'm really surprised. Well, Wait, I mean, what, why is it a cop well, out? His, 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 I don't find that to be particularly convincing. I mean, the univer- universities don't have an obligation to decide that the spectrum extends to Steve Bannon, right? I mean, and all of these controversial right. speakers who have faced protests at universities have been invited by student groups, yeah. not by the, for the most part, not by the university itself. The, I guess the question is, Steve Bannon doesn't, I guess you could have invited a lot of other people to create those kinds of conversations and not have to invite him because I think you have to assess him as whether he really is the representative of a certain kind of intellectual line of thinking that you want to probe and understand and perhaps if you're of this mind, expose or whether he's just coming to throw bombs and 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 then what the what the ultimate possibility is of actually learning something as opposed to just creating a, a scene. Well, the, May I, I mean, have a different go ahead David. Well, I think to make a couple of points, one uh the New Yorker has done a very good job of examining and interrogating the ideas of people like Steve Bannon yes. over many years. So I I don't think as a as a as a as a overall journalistic enterprise you can accuse the new yorker of hiding from those ideas or not attacking those ideas or addressing those ideas and the fact that they chose in this case not to address it in this one particular form uh you know maybe that's cowardice but they certainly are are eager to address them in lots of different ways and and you have to give them credit for that um the other point which which uh, is not mine which i was talking to julia turner of the culture gap fest about this um, of Slate, I of, believe she's of the Slate, editor of, of Slate, Slate as well. Editor of Slate, but I was I was having dinner with her yesterday, and and she made this point to me, which so it's it's more her point, which is that, I mean, they they had to they backed off because their festival was going to collapse, like they would literally have In lost words, the festival. That you don't get credit for backing off. Well, in that. They, they get some credit, but I mean, do, when you say they didn't, Remnick was gutless. He didn't have a choice. He had to get rid of. He had to dump Bannon because otherwise the whole thing was dead. It was and Bannon's word that was gutless. For them. It was Bannon who called him gutless. Yeah. Right. Wait. You said when you oh. s- you called him gutless, we didn't call oh, him oh. gutless. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but of course, you know. But it's also they obviously should have known up front. That? Yeah. They that should they have known up front. I mean, they're paying him an honorarium. Well, an so, honorarium, right. like an honorarium that, implies an honor. Honor. Isn't that the fundamental problem? I mean, that was what got me. Like, I'm all for a free exchange of ideas, but you're talking about. We all know what these ideas festivals are like because we've gone to Aspen. Like everyone is going to be treated with a certain amount of like respect and currying a favor because you don't, they're invited guests. Like you don't invite speakers to your ideas festival, your fancy schmoozy platform, and then, you know, st- treat them sternly. And so, yes, it was an honor. And that's the part of it that I think got somehow like lost on the New Yorker that it wasn't simply that Bannon was going to come and they were going to you know set off some fireworks and Remnick was going to be a tough interrogator and it would all be a fruitful exchange of ideas it was that they were elevating him and if you worry about white nationalist um, ideas being respected and honored and normalized and mainstreamed then that seems troubling 
if you're going to extend these offers, you got to think through what happens when people are going to get upset. And I, I think there is um, still, after all of the power of social media um, and the whiplash that Facebook and Twitter produce when people get angry, there's still a way in which big establishment organizations are unprepared for it. They see themselves as more powerful than they are, and they're surprised at how they can be brought low by the heckler masses. Well, is it the heckler? Is it the it's kind of the elite heckler masses, which is to say your writers who refused, who, who talk about and resigning. And your readers and your, or listeners or attendees. And your right? attendees who are, who are the draw for all those other. Um, I mean, Judd Apatow is a, is a draw for me. So, you know, I mean, he's incredibly creative and clever. Yeah, and and for so sure. all, lots of people would be like, hmm, was going to go. I'm now not going to go. Lots of revenue. Although it's funny, like Judd Apatow also has no, it's not like Judd Apatow's ideas are hard to find either. So you could say like well, one of the reasons you don't invite Bannon is like these ideas are very, he has no shortage of, of platforms, of outlets to get his word out. And therefore you're actually not doing anyone a service. I think you could say the same thing about Judd Apatow. But not that that's relevant. But that it's not ideas parallel, are... right? I mean, who cares? Like, right. I mean, the question with Bannon is, is he a, a, is he a racist who's, you know, effectively denying the full humanity of many people who live on our planet? And do we want to be honoring him given those views? Right. I think the other question, though, is whether the heckler's veto has a chilling effect on future choices you make. Sure. Like, obviously, The New Yorker doesn't invite Bannon next year. But what if it also doesn't invite you know, X, Y, Z conservatives who are not white nationalists, but who its listenership might object to. Yeah. Yep. Yes. And that's where we start to worry. Do you guys think, uh, so So clearly, I think we would all say New Yorkers going to do a profile of Steve Bannon. That's a great idea. Yeah, it's sure. It's really interesting. His idea is so important. Not Critical his profiles. idea is so important, but like well, he matters His ideas in the are world. important. Well, I guess. They're so. loathsome, but they're important. Mm. But it's, we would all agree that's a good project for the New Yorker to do. I think we also, uh, you know, I think there's a strong case to be made that having him speak, giving him a platform of honor at your festival is maybe the wrong thing to do because he has these loathsome beliefs and this is giving them dignity. What about if it was, I'm going to interview you on the New Yorker podcast? Like, is that is that more like having him at your festival or is that more like doing your profile? It's more like the profile, but you better ask some really good, sharp questions. And this is a reputational thing, not a dollars and cents thing. So from the dollars and cents thing, which which you've argued persuasively is basically the only ruling metric here, then of course it's fine because it's not going to cost you anything financially. So therefore, yeah, I mean, I think that, those, but why, but why would analysis, New Yorker fans, why do people who are fans of the New Yorker feel that it is it is an offense to have you at my festival where I'm going to be where you're going to be interviewed sharply by David right, Remnick, because, but it's not an offense because, to have you on a podcast where you're going to be interviewed sharply by from their attendance yes, and the, the other other people who were on stage who said they would cancel if Bannon was invited and the fawning right there's just a level of fawning that comes with the public event everyone is very smiley and cheery and hail fellow well met like that's how we deal with each other socially in those situations um, and uh, I mean probably that's also what happens when someone walks into a room to be interviewed for a podcast and yet we don't have to see that as part of the production and also the the line of questioning I think really can be tougher in that setting um, but I do think if you're going to have people with um, racist views you're going to be interviewing them you better ask some really sharp questions and know your shit all right let's go to cocktail chatter when uh, you have invited someone 
loathsome over to your house and you're like, oh my God, someone loathsome's coming over. I really need a stiff drink and I need to talk about something else before that person gets over here. What, John Dickerson, will you be talking about as you have that stiff drink? Well, uh, I, I'm going to be talking about tennis because it turns out that tennis, according to scientists, and we know about those scientists, they say that tennis can um, add nearly 10 years to your life. This is great news for the sport of tennis, which has seen something of a of a diminution in my view since the heyday of, of maybe it's just nostalgia for me. But like um, anyway, tennis players could live an average of 9.7 years longer than someone who does not exercise. Badminton players, 6.2 years, um, and people who play soccer, five years. Solitary sports goes down. Um, jogging also doesn't get you up to the 9.7 years. Um, is there and, any explanation for why so tennis it's, is done by St. Luke's Health Center in Kansas but City? But it's so exactly stressful, right. and people are mean to each well, other. Well, that's because you and I grew up playing tennis in in the kind of competitive, harsh. But you're right. No, actually, Anne, who, who, who brought, came to tennis later in life, has played competitively, and 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 man, people are uncool. It's really I mean, not they cheat. good. They cheat. They 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 call you out for cheating. But anyway, leaving that aside, it is the view as David anticipated. That according to the St. Luke's Center, uh, Health Center in Kansas City, that it is the social aspect of the game. Right, that adds and if you're playing for fun, then with people you know, then it really can be fun, and the cheating is not really a part of. What it. is swim? Does swimming? Swimming is more add. solitary. Though, I mean, it's more right? solitary, but I always feel swimmers always seem to be about 106 really years old. Yes, that's, well, that's quite a good. Swimmers do not do well, according to this. Sw- okay, so drowning, probably. The solitary sports had less of an impact on people's life expectancy. And Cy- cyclists in... live an average of 3.7, swimmers 3.4, and joggers just 3.2. And soccer, I'm interested that a team sport like soccer, which I think of as cheerier than tennis, yeah. would be, but still social. But I suspect the answer with soccer is, well, all right, so one, I bet, uh, is that you actually can't play soccer into your, when you get old. Mm. That you can play tennis. You and guys are going to be playing tennis at 85. You have to stop. Yeah, you have to stop. I mean, I'm basically at the, I feel like I'm going to get, you know, right. Where, to no, the it end is of soccer true that you watch people play doubles. People can play doubles like until the day before they die. <laughs> I as mean, far they as can I can tell. Actually, with a walker and play doubles. And some of the doubles I've seen play like, amazing. I, how little work you have to do. You guys are definitely going to outlive me. I predict that, I mean, I won't be here to collect on this bet, but I'll bet that both of you outlive me by at least five years, which is what these metrics will, will indicate. Uh, uh, what is your chatter, Emily? So I um, feel like this is a moment in which we all just should have more distraction than we do and in which really good books are going to have more trouble than ever breaking through. So I want to recommend um, the book Boomtown by my New York Times Magazine colleague, Sam Anderson. It's this just like charming, but also quite, I would say, deep take on Oklahoma City as America's most important minor city, as a place with, like, wonderful tales. I mean, David, you would be so... Like, this is so up your Atlas Obscura alley of, like, let's take this unlikely place and find its riches, both as a matter of storytelling and history and, you know, urban planning. And I just think Sam uses this um, city as a way of thinking of all kinds of big questions about American life. Like, how do we build cities? What does it mean not to live in, um, you know, 
San Francisco, LA, New York, Washington. Um, as a maybe, I also really like this book because I am a resident of a little baby city. So I really uh, am taken with this book. It's called Boomtown by Sam Anderson. Is it about modern and, Oklahoma City? Or yeah, it's whole- well, there is no such other thing because Oklahoma City was founded in this crazy one fell swoop. Sam accounts where they just like opened it up and everyone like charged in with their wagon trains and well, like Oklahoma say, was no no this was a so- story about the founding of Oklahoma City I can't remember the year early 20th century well, I believe and they the all like, gave out the plots of land that's yeah that's Oklahoma that when Oklahoma no, was open I'm settlement. telling you I'm gonna look it up all right. while we're I'm talking. probably wrong but- the book has been uh it's on my desk and I can't wait to get into it it looks it it looks like it has all the kind of it almost is like if a book in Harry Potter, you know, where it's like all the activity in the book is making the the cover on the book go uh, up and down. I'm so I'm psyched to. Well, they've, read they've it. had Excellent. this visionary mayor, Mick Cornett, who's really yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. Republican. Um, I think it's one of the few. I actually don't think it's Republican, but it's it's the it's one of the most Republican big cities. So that makes sense because it's, it's in Oklahoma, a super red state. Uh, all right, my chatter, uh, I got a, I'm got them piled up because I also have a listener chatter. First of all, I just want to recommend that... Oklahoma City was born on a single afternoon in 1889. Under a clear blue sky, tens of thousands of settlers from all over the world lined up. And then they charged in. In a matter of hours, a scrubby patch of grassy prairie became a city of 10,000. But Sorry. isn't that how Oklahoma was No, born? this is a story about Oklahoma no, City. Okay, I, Maybe no, Maybe that's you're, also you're, true. This is a I, classic example of me being wrong. I'm just asking. You're just like broken records insisting. But isn't I don't this know. how Oklahoma was born? He's I thought moved the whole, on from insisting to now I'm, curious. I'm embarrassed that I was wrong because and that, that Maybe I was it is totally, also true, I was totally story. like ignorantly being... Pretending I was writer than you, who know so much. But right. I will. But I will I, I'm just Google asking: Was it Oklahoma, Oklahoma itself also founded in this way? I thought that's why Oklahoma sooner. I thought Sooners was that the territory opened up and people from, I guess, Kansas, like went over the border before they were supposed to. That was my understanding of how right, this. You talk this, for a little bit, and I will check <laughs> okay. to see. All right. But I, but you are absolutely right. I'm wrong as usual, and I was wrong in a particularly you egregious might be way. Additionally so right. I'm sorry, perhaps. But I'm definitely wrong on the substance of your point. All right. Uh, so my well, chat- but also by the way, both can be true. It's true that the Sooners yeah, right? were settlers who jumped the gun yeah. when it was they came in before it was opened for general settlement around 1890. So maybe this is a story of um, both these places. Weird. Why would the city? Well, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to say the word Oklahoma City again. <laughs> Never again will those words cross my lips. I already the the most Some embarrassing piece I ever wrote was about as an attack on Oklahoma, so I can never go to Oklahoma. Oh no! Oh, well, they're not. Um, it's terrible. It's a terrible piece. Uh, but totally right. But terrible. Anyway. Uh, so, I, all right, my chatter. I want to recommend that uh, Gavaz listeners get and read Mark Leibovich's great book big game it's a fantastic book about the nfl in a, in a moment of of uh intense controversy mark spent the last four years um just embedded in the league and it's a it's a great read and he's a friend it's as good as his book this town was about politics this book is about the nfl my other chatter is about tyler cowan who, who is so smart he is the most consistently interesting thinker i know of and also great uh recommender of restaurants as well but he has a column about fake news and real news in bloomberg which i thought was so smart and he was saying that really the problem that we have in this country is not fake news in the way that we think 
uh, we do. That fake fake news is is problematic. People are, believe things that are untrue, but that's always been around. That there's always been propaganda. There's always been lies. There's always been half truths. But what we do have now is a problem of too much news. And and one of the things that too much freely available information does is that it has tarnished everyone. And it's tarnished the elites. It's tarnished the best people. We we have come to know too much about people who we would otherwise admire. And we learn, I mean, this is a very Dickersonian point. We learn bad things about them or we learn that they're, they're, the goodness of their ideas or the goodness of their plans is not is not complete and the mythos around them is is not true. Elon Musk is a classic example of someone who has truly grand and mostly noble ambitions, but also has skeezy elements to him and has done skeezy things. At the same time, he has these strong, utopian, and admirable desires and plans. And we we lose our idealistic vision of the country and idealistic vision of the people who lead us, idealistic vision of the 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 our heroes. And faith in in institutions and in people weakens. That's interesting. In the in the wake of the McCain funeral, which obviously jumped over a lot of unpleasant truths uh, about him, some of which he would admit, and nevertheless held up a certain uh, image. I think that I'd be interested in what his thoughts about that are. But the other thing, though, is since with this genie can't get back in the bottle, the question is then what. Um, it seems to me that what the the, the antidote is is pers- is some sense of perspective. Perspective, right? Right. I try really hard. Like when I hear, ever I hear bad things, I mean, I do think Elon Musk is an example of this. Elon Musk is just like there's stuff that Elon Musk does that I don't like, and he said bad things, and he's he's been not particularly pleasant to journalists. But then I look at the total. I try. I really tried to look at the totality. I just think, wow, this is a guy who has so much ambition for the world, and he's trying to do so many things that if if they pull them off, will be significant and important and admirable and so and i think it's it's true of him it's Isn't true, what you're it's true of about lots of people related to bearing a grudge right it's like i mean this you don't bear a grudge to someone who you're just reading about and you don't have a personal connection to but it's the idea that the the distasteful souring element of the person's record or personality is what sticks with you yes. or do you just like let yeah. it wash right. off over right. time and then Finally, a listener chatter. Again, you listeners continue to send us wonderful cocktail chatters of yours. I would like to go to all of your cocktail parties. <laughs> uh, so you should tweet us at, at @slategabfest with with a great uh, cocktail chatter for next week. Something that you you would be talking about. Uh, and this one co- week's comes from Christopher Catania at, at @chris underscore Catania, and it's a link to a story uh, about the Ninth Circuit, a Ninth Circuit ruling, which is that homeless people in California and other Western states now cannot be prosecuted for sleeping on public lands if there is no shelter for them available. That This is a form of harassment that a lot of police departments, well, harassment, that's not the, yeah, I mean, I guess it's harassment, that, that it was very hard to be homeless in a lot of parts of the country because if you attempted to sleep anywhere that was, that was a public land, you would just be harangued and bullied and arrested by the cops or driven, driven away. And now, they have said that uh, this is no, this is not legal. That if if there are no options for you, if you don't have anywhere to go, you have a right to sleep outside, which is good. That sounds like the right ruling. Agreed. Emily, Emily's nodding. I'm nodding sagely, or not so sagely, as the case may be. That is our show for today. Political Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Road. This is Izzy's last week. We love you, Izzy, and he we will miss been, you. He has been a lodestar. He has been a lodestar. He has been a lodestar. 
So uh, true. We have named a successor, a Kavanaugh to his Kennedy, pending confirmation by the Senate Judiciary Committee. Bridget Dunlap will be sitting. She will be assuming a seat on the GabFest court by the second Thursday in September. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and tweet your cocktail chatter to us. Thank you to CBS Radio as always for being such great hosts. And Alan, thank you for being such a great host. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will be with you next week. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.